This is Until All Are Free, a podcast by the Exodus Road. I'm your host, Preston Goff. The world isn't nearly as big as it seems. We at the Exodus Road have witnessed the truth of that statement. Trafficking may be a global enterprise, but the nature of the criminal sex industry often means that victims of human trafficking find themselves within major hubs that are deeply, deeply interconnected. Survivors of human trafficking may pass through the same small hubs all around the world. In this episode, we're telling a story that highlights this very fact. And we're gonna start with Matt Parker. Matt's working in Latin America, performing operations, and he meets a survivor a Latina girl, she begins to tell Matt about her experience being trafficked in one of these criminal sex industry hubs halfway across the world. And it turns out that the Exodus Road is already involved in that area. In that interview, I'm I'm in Latin America interviewing a survivor and she is telling me all the things we had suspected she confirmed. And she was giving me names, she was giving me addresses, where they held her, how it all worked. When you find an establishment that's trafficking girls and no one will do anything about it, it's really difficult to forget it. You can't just move on. I I can't, I, I can't just hang it up and say, well, we can't do the case. And also what gives, what makes it even more important is that you told the survivor in Latin America that you're gonna go find maybe her friends and other girls that are trapped in that network. Yes, and I try not to do that, but you just, (laughs) you know, you don't want to make promises you can't keep, but when you sit down and you're looking in the eyes of a survivor who's come out of it, and for all practical purposes, she shouldn't have been able to have escaped that, but she did. You get this sentiment from survivors of, hey, I'm, you know, I got out, but I left girls behind. Promise me you'll go back and and get them. So you're right, David, that when you say that, it becomes, the case becomes personal. Matt takes this information from the survivor. On his next trip to this criminal sex hub, he wants to investigate and confirm the intel that she shared. And we've censored the location information from this segment to maintain operational security. I found myself in that, uh, there was a restaurant in the bottom of this hotel and I was undercover with my team and I had a shadow across the street making sure I was safe. And we, I just sat down and had, had dinner there and I observed. And as I'm sitting there eating dinner, I start talking to uh, the cook who served me and uh, she was from... And she just told I said, hey, you know, how did you how did you come find work in that's that's a long way away from where we are. She's like, oh well, I was trafficked here. But in this case, she had paid human smugglers to get her into to send money back home, which is a common thing. You know, people can't afford the visa, they can't afford the process or wouldn't be granted the visa. So they pay human smugglers to get them into a different country for work but then that can quickly turn exploitive. And what was human trafficking turns into, I mean, what what was human smuggling turns into 
human trafficking is similar to what looked at the beginning to be knowing a willing prostitution turns into an exploitive event. Um, and a lot of times these girls and boys and men and women, they don't, they can't connect the dots. They feel like, well, these are the choices I made, but uh, someone's changed the rules and the agreement. But they don't realize it's trafficking. They would just say, well, you know, I owe, you know, I owe more of a debt than I thought. Um, you know, yeah, a portion of what I was promised isn't true, but but other parts of it are true, and it's just how it is. So I'm sitting there talking to the chef, and I turn around, and a girl walks in, a Latina. And you have to know, and it's not too common when you see a Latina walk in. And everything was wrong with this situation. Instantly, every every article of clothing she had on was brand new. Her shoes were brand new. Her luggage was brand new. Um, and I think what was most noticeable was an escort opened the taxi and escorted her straight to the elevator. She didn't check in like a normal hotel visit. She went straight to the elevator. They're standing there and, and waiting for the doors to open right in front of the CCTV cameras. And I'm cognizant of all these, these things. And I just know this is a moment that I need to take advantage of. So I just hopped up. I walked over. Hey, where are you from? You're so beautiful. You know, I'm just trying to get intelligence. And she was scared to death. And she answered a few of my questions, and the escort was visibly growing uncomfortable. The doors opened, and they went. After seeing this encounter with a Latina in the hotel, Matt decides to follow up on some of the other intel that the survivor had provided him. And this time, Matt brings along investigator David Zock to accompany him. So we pick up the story with Matt and David together in a taxi. What we had learned from the survivor down in Latin America was she was housed and operating out of the hotel, but she was also forced to freelance. It wasn't really freelance work, truly, but at some clubs. And she gave me the names of some of the clubs. And so David and I, we decided to start operating at the clubs, which were maybe five minutes away. And the driver pulls over in a really dark, like it was not well lit. And it was a horseshoe alley connected to the main road by two roads, but it, it was a dead end. It just kind of apartment buildings and some businesses. And then there was two clubs. I think it was two right there. And so we get out and we're kind of confused. Dave and I are like, what, where is it? Where's this big club that's supposed to be thumping music and, you know, having girls. And he's like, I'll go down this dark alley and it's on the right. And I'm highly suspicious at this moment because I've been in lots of clubs. I've been undercover in lots of clubs and very few of them had the same feeling, especially an establishment this size. It was supposed to be a huge international club. And that there, there's advertisements for all these clubs all over the place, on the taxis. And, and so it's like, why would, you, why would you have a club that's not advertised? Like, and you know, why would people need that? Because there's all this really out in the open stuff anyways. And I mean, I'm, I'm thinking this is a setup.
So for me, you know, we have Delta operatives in proximity, but they're not super close. David and I are operating in a team. It's just you and I, right? And so when you go down that dark alley, for me, you know, I, as the leader of the organization, I'm, I'm putting myself in harm's way. It's harder when you put somebody else in harm's way. And I'm just cognizant and situationally aware that this doesn't feel right. Or, or at least that the risk level's higher. And I don't know if you remember, we're walking down this tight alley and it's super dark. And in the distance, we see men smoking. It was like, a, a, like five to seven men and they didn't look like good guys. <laughs> and we're walking towards them because that's what the taxi driver told us to do. The hair on the back of my neck was up. I don't know about you. Yeah, I don't. I never liked the places places like that that Matt takes me to. It's it's the it's it's any sort of environment where everything in you tells you to cross the street and walk the other way. Matt always was like curious about those places, you know, and like, man, you know what? And you said to me once, we we're walking. You're like, if I was if I was doing something illegal, this seems like a place that would make sense to to do it. Let's, let's walk down here and. Sometimes it's it's the dogs in the dark that are the most scary in those environments for me because you got these dogs barking and wild dogs you don't want to get bit. And and at this point, even outside the establishment, it's you can't hear anything. You can't hear music. Normally, you know, it's thumping and you there's neon lights and, and it's well lit, and that's what was so unusual. But we we approach these men, and we're on high alert. I'm on high alert. But like David said, it's like we're interested still. So we're ready to, to fight or flight. We're ready to run. But at the same time, we're trying to understand what's happening. I think when we approached, they they kind of animated into their, the security force that they were supposed to be. They do frisk us. And again, from an undercover perspective, the fact that they had that level of security was an indicator that that we were in the right place. And they they were they were immediately on it, and they escorted us to an entrance um, to this mass. I mean, it was a massive complex concrete building that felt a little bit like a hotel to me. But then the the lady at the front stated there was a cover charge we paid, but we did see. When we were paying, we did see girls that looked like they could have been Latin American walking out of this place. And then these doors open, we enter into this very large dance club scene, and it was packed. But not a dance club where there's dancers on stage and stuff. It's just a place where you can mingle, and there's a lot of women and girls there that will come up to you and offer to dance with you, or you can buy them a drink, which is a very, it was a brand new scenario for me, because I wasn't used to that. I actually. When I was getting a drink, a girl came up to me and my hair got stuck in her hair. <laughs> so we got tied. Like she came up and said, how are you doing? And like, whisk, you know, met me and it was loud in there. So she had to lean in right next to me. And, and when she leaned in, my, my hair got tied up with her hair tie. And she had really cool dreadlocks. She was from Africa. And that was a weird moment. I remember that. And then there's security everywhere too. There's everywhere. There's guys sitting there watching. It was really dark, very loud discotheque. Lots of, I mean, it was hard to hear each other. It's hard to communicate with any, anybody, any of the girls, because it was so loud. And, and it was hard to film. 
because it was so loud. And back then we were using a particular camera that in those environments, the, the reverb of just the music would, yeah. um, distort, distort the audio. So just in the video, it would distort oh, that's both. That's right. The, the vibration. It, so the, and it, so the we weren't getting great film or audio. We didn't know that. There was pool tables in the back, to the back left. I mean, it was a huge place. We walked around, tried to engage with some of the girls. My impression was there's more nationalities represented here than I'm used to. There were girls from different countries, and it was hard to tell where they're from because it's so dark. Couldn't hear them. So we... We'd found it, right? I mean, we'd found the place that this girl had told me about in Latin America. Um, we didn't see a ton of Latinas, though. Not at the moment. So after being there for a little bit, um, we went outside to, to smoke and talk to those men. Do you remember that? Yeah. And we asked them, you know, do you have any other, is there anything else here? And then they took us, they escorted us underneath the building. There was a brothel underneath that dance club. Nothing really too remarkable. You know, we went in there and engaged with the girls. They were all older girls, older women. And at that point, we decided, let's, let's go to the hotel, that we, that our target location, that's supposed to somehow be connected to this place. So Dave and I get back and we're, and we're saying, hey, take us to the hotel. And he does. Dave and I show up on the scene. We get out and we start talking to the bouncer. But this hotel, one of the reasons it's difficult to operate, and it, there's an air about it that if it's, if it's just simply legal prostitution, uh, the protection mechanism would be different. But this hotel caters as their normal clientele are not Westerners. It's not Americans. So we stood out right away. And so when we enter into this place, the other thing in the back of my mind is we had built relationships with law enforcement in a particular country in Latin America where I'd interviewed this survivor about this case. And I was hopeful that if we did come across a, a Latin American citizen enslaved here, we might could, could circumvent the corruption by allowing, by giving evidence to this Latin American country who can then interact with Interpol and maybe put a different kind of pressure uh, through bilateral agreement because there was a bilateral agreement between the countries um, for extradition and, and repatriation. And so that was the hope was that, hey, if we could just capture the Latin Americans in this place, it would give us a different approach. So when we enter on the scene, we go into this hotel, we know that it's a transnational syndicate operating this place. And although it felt like any other hotel, we knew that there were dangers in there that were unique to that, that crime. As we're being escorted to the elevator and they're taking us up to this floor where they have all these girls living. We're being stared down by the key trafficker. And right in front of that elevator is a CCTV camera. And the, and the bouncer who's escorting us, he's interviewing us. He's asking us questions, trying to get a read on who we are. 
and then he takes us up. And then it's a slow moving elevator. They never, we've been in a lot of elevators together and all of them are a little bit spooky. <laughs> They're never normal. There's good working elevators. And so it just adds to the frustration of the situation we have to be in. But then just seeing those girls sitting on those beds, that it's very rare doing this work that the, the girls don't engage aggressively sometimes. And these girls did not engage. They barely even smiled sometimes. But then we we saw a girl from Latin America, and I, but I got to say, me llamo David, mucho gusto. I said hi to her and was really excited that we came and found what we were looking for. The fact that there was even just one girl from Latin America gave credence to the testimony I'd heard. So when we left that establishment, we were able to navigate our way out well. And we put together the film and sent it to Latin America to the law enforcement officer that was in charge of that case. And, and it's very typical, you know, we don't hear back a lot of times. Even here in the United States, if we find evidence of human trafficking, we, we deliver that to law enforcement. We very rarely sometimes hear back on what, what happens. Um, and that's for all kinds of legal reasons. But you fast forward a year and a half, maybe two years, maybe a year and a half, from when we had collected that evidence and delivered that target package. And just this last January, we were back in proximity to that case. And I actually embedded a team to spend the night in that hotel. They're no longer operating there. So one of two things could have happened. A, law enforcement finally actually took it down and there was an arrest made, or they've moved again. Um, either is, is a great success for us, either. We want traffickers to, to be on the move. We want them to feel that sense of accountability and fear that people are aware of what they're doing and we're gonna just keep coming to police. We're gonna keep doing it. So oftentimes we don't really get that satisfaction of connecting the dots that because of our actions at the Exodus Road, then it was taken down. Oftentimes it's, we delivered a target package. All we really know is they're not there. They're not operating again. They're not, they're not there now. How much were we a part of that or not a part of that? We're not sure. But it, it still, it doesn't feel quite as good as, as if, you know, we were present for uh, a bust or a takedown or a rescue operation, but it still does feel good that, that we are this force constantly pushing intelligence to those who can take action. And at some point, action was taken. And to be a, a consistent thorn in their side is exciting to me. Like I'm, I like being a nuisance at the very least to their activities. And I like, I like it that us being there makes it so they had to spend money and, and resources to, to relocate, possibly. And I think it's important too to say, every time we operate, we will be swinging back by those places to make sure they've not reopened, because that's common, you know? Traffickers are arrested, things go quiet for a year, and then they reopen. We'll just keep, keep delivering intelligence. 
keep speaking truth into the situation. And Until All Are Free is a podcast by The Exodus Road, a nonprofit dedicated to the strategic fight against human trafficking around the world. You can learn more about The Exodus Road by visiting us on our website at theexodusroad.com. Until All Are Free is hosted by me, Preston Goff, and it's produced by Isaac Lay. Our internal themes for this episode were produced by Philip Daniel, and the music you've heard on the intro and outro was generously donated by City of Sound. We're working hard on new episodes of the podcast right now, and I don't want you to miss out. Subscribe wherever you're listening to this episode to be notified when our next show is available. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to take a moment to rate and review us. If you're still with us, I'm excited to share a teaser from the next episode of Until All Are Free. I was headed home after three weeks of being away from my family. I was getting onto the plane late at night in Nairobi. I think there are around somewhere between 30 and 50 Kenyan women that all look to be in their early 20s for the most part, who were wearing matching t-shirts and they were clustered up all around the room. And they didn't seem at ease. They seemed uncertain, nervous. And I just wondered, who are all these women wearing matching t-shirts? And I just said, you know, where are you headed? I want you to help me. Here I am in this house. Have they told you, the people who are going to employ you, what will happen to your passport when you get to Saudi Arabia? Will you get to be the one who stays in control of that? Or is the person who's going to be employing you going to be in control of your passport? I work a lot. She don't give me the food. After now, I'm not eating anything. And they all, to a person, said that they had already been told that their employer would retain their passport upon arrival. And that's when I asked, you know, what, why is that? Why, why don't you get to keep a hold of your passport? And they said it's to keep us from running away. Please help me, because I'm tired, I'm tired. I want to back Kenya. <laughs>